Hey everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Vertical Playpen, the podcast all about adventure and experiential education. I'm your host, Phil, and in today's episode, I am joined by Phil Dark, who is the president of Providence World, the co-host of Think Orphan, and also the co-host of How Soccer Explains Leadership. As a leader yourself in the nonprofit world, how do you value connection with the people that you work with? I think it's everything, honestly. I mean, it goes to personality too. Like my personality is very much a outgoing, people-focused personality. So it is something that I see it as if I'm not connecting with people, I'm not understanding where they're at. I'm not understanding, um, you know, because if they're not healthy themselves, they're not going to be the most productive employees for me. They're not going to be the most productive people for me and for everyone else that they're around. And because as a leader, I don't see it just as simply my job is to help you to get me what I need. My job is to help you to flourish as a human being, which will help you to be the most productive human being you can be. And if you're in the right spot in my company or in my nonprofit or in my team or in my, uh, you know, whatever it is that we're doing together, if you're not healthy in all aspects of your life, you're not going to be as, uh, as powerful of an employee or as a team member for me that you can be. So that connection time is a time to really, and especially, and I would say before that, uh, hopefully, um, you have done, you know, personality assessments. You've done things to get to know what is healthy for this person to be able to see that if they're just, you know, if they're a very outgoing, people focused person, and all you see for three or four days is them saying, I don't really want to talk. I just want to be in my work. That would be a trigger to say, something's not quite right. Um, on the flip side, if they're, you know, somebody who always is in their work and just focused and they're more of that task focused person. And all of a sudden you're walking around and you're talking and they're just, they're just talking and, and they're like jittery and, and, and you kind of just take a step back and go, okay, what's going on here too. So really it's that to be able to understand who they are and what's going on and also to be able to, you know, empathize with them. And it's something that, you know, going back to personalities and strengths, my, Empathy for me is 33 out of 34. Uh, my wife, fortunately, is three out of 34 on Strength Finders is what I'm referring to there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we make a good team. But it's not that I don't care. It's just that sometimes, you know, I don't necessarily empathize with them. Mm. Um, and I don't dive into their life with that. But I do believe as a leader, I needed, I need to practice that. I need to develop that. I need to work on that. And so that as I'm going, you know, as that leader is going around, as I'm going around to my team and to be able to understand, okay, something's going on. Hey, what's going on? And they may or may not want to talk about it, but they know you care. Mm-hmm. Right. And what is that old Jack, John Maxwell adage, which he stole from somebody else, you know, assuredly um, that people don't you know, care how much, you know, until they know how much you care. And that is absolutely true. And people don't want to be led by someone that they feel doesn't care about them and doesn't want to know about who they are and what they're going through. And again, they might not want to talk about it, but 
sometimes just them simply knowing that you asked a question and that you are there. And if they ever do want to talk about it, you are there. And oftentimes with that leader, um, employee, leader, uh, team member, coach, player relationship, sometimes it's not the most um, you know, natural or people don't want it to be where they, I'm telling them everything. But as a leader, you can say, hey, we have these resources if you need anything. Here's somebody that I know has gone through something similar. Um, you know, maybe you can talk with them. And then that way, again, it's just showing that you care, showing that you want them to flourish, not just so that you can get money for, you know, they can get money for you or they can get you wins or they can get you whatever, but because you genuinely care about them as a, as a human being. Someone recently said this about, um, I think it was about TED Talks. Uh, they re- referred to as sages on the stage and that whole, oh, the sage on the stage stuff. But rather than leaders shouldn't be sages on the stage, but should be guides on the side. Very romantic rhyming thing. So it stick, uh, sticks in the brain. But there is some truth to that. Rather than being the person at the top telling people what to do, you there facilitate and help them from the sidelines. That, that, that tends to work best in terms of the way that uh, really effective teams can function through that leadership. It's not someone just ordering someone around. I totally agree with that. I mean, it, well, I mean, in a lot of ways, I think that as a leader, obviously, if a tough decision needs to be done, you need to mm. make that decision. Responsibility, it is absolutely your responsibility for, you know, I, as I've said, a great leader takes all the blame when things go bad and they share all the the glory when things go good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that's unfortunately, I think in the last few decades, we've seen the opposite of that with the purported leaders in our world and a lot of companies and so on and so forth. They take all the glory when things go good and they, they pass the buck when, when things go bad. And if you're the smartest person on your team, if you're the best person on your team as the leader, you're failing miserably. I think that you need to hire people who are better than you, who are smarter than you in these different areas that you're not great in. And I think, unfortunately, I think these these narcissistic leaders who who come in, and I, I use that, it's almost a paradox there, narcissistic leaders, because <laughs> when I look at the leaders in my life who have been my most revered, just these guys are amazing, amazing leaders. And I and I see what is what is the common denominator with them. And it it's a servant heart. It's someone who comes in and says, okay, how can I serve you? How can I, like going back to help you flourish? But beyond that, it's a humility. And you go back to Jim, you know, I knock back to go to Jim Collins, where he talks about level five leaders. They have this professional will and that humility, right? It's to know that I am not the best. It's to know that I don't know everything. It's to know that I need other people to be able to help me make me whole and make our organization, make our team the best it can be. When you look at uh, a lot of these, whether it's a, a soccer team or an organization, you know, I was an attorney, right? And so as an attorney, if every case that I had, I just started trying to make up stuff that I didn't really know in a brief to a judge, you know, rather than getting an expert witness who is the best in this area that to speak on this subject that needs to be spoken to we would have lost every case because that's the other side would have done something. They would have been doing it better, but a leader will say, okay, I know this, this is my sweet spot. I'm going to stay in this lane. I'm going to do these things and I'm going to surround myself with people better than me in all these other areas. As I talked about earlier, you know, empathy is not necessarily my strong point, nor is focus quite frankly, you know, as a, as a high, I, 
people focused outgoing. I focus is not something that I just, you know, you'll hear in this interview. I'll I'll go on little tangents, I'll go on little rabbit trails, I'll, you know, quote someone here and then I'll, you know, seemingly seemingly, but in my head it all makes sense. But a lot of other people are like, what? You know, but if I don't hire somebody on my team to be that focused, task oriented, driven uh, person to be able to come in and say, okay, we need, you have all these ideas out here, Phil. We need to execute on them really, really well. And we need to go, you know, have that long-term execution strategy. That's not my sweet spot. And mm-hmm. if I pretended that it was, I'd fail miserably on every team that I was a part of. So going, you know, kind of back to what you're talking about, it's this, it's this idea of just everyone, you know, we need to make sure that we're not trying to do everything. Mm-hmm. We're not trying to be all things to all people. Most people that work in the not-profit world, we all will claim that we don't do this for the money. So then what do we do it for? What's the untangible thing? If it's not for the money, it must be something else. And sometimes that's very hard to identify, but I think we all know and experience it and we would struggle to leave this world now and step back into the world of profit world because there's just there's something about it that you you feel. No, I agree with that fully. And, you know, there was a Friends episode where Phoebe, if you haven't watched Friends, I apologize for the reference that most people have. So I think mm-hmm. we're pretty good here. Phoebe says to uh, Chandler, everything you do, you do because it just, you know, you do it for yourself. It's all selfish acts. Like everything you're doing are selfish. And he goes, no, I don't. I, you know, he started naming stuff and she's like, yeah, and this and this and this. So the whole episode, he's trying to do things that are selfless, right? And at the end of the show, he finally comes up to you because I got it. Today, I helped this woman across the street. I didn't even tell her my name. She was an older woman. She needed help. I helped her. I, I grabbed her arm and we helped her across the street. And then I just left and I did, she didn't even say thank you. And she goes, but you felt good about it, huh? And he goes, ah, <laughs> oh, you know, and so, you know, and, but it's, it's that point of mm-hmm. it's, it's not a selfless act, but I think that it's, it, it truly can be something that when you come and say, look, it's bigger than me. This team, this organization, whatever it is, it's not about me. It's about the cause. And I think in nonprofit work, because there's no bottom line dollars, it does become, it, or it's easier to become about the cause. Now, it can always become about you. It could become about, you know, the, the leader thinking, oh, I'm so big time because I do X, Y, Z. Oh, I wrote a book. Oh, I have a podcast. Oh, we're now we have X downloads. Oh, we have, there's always something. So it really is a posture. Is it a, do you have a posture of it's about me and I want to get the glory, but what you realize is at the end of the day, that's so empty, whether it's money, whether it's fame. I mean, I look at like Jim Carrey, who's about as big as they come, who says, I would never wish fame upon anyone. Because it's empty when you get to that top, you know, there's that, you know, you want to make sure your ladder's on the right building, right? You get to the top of the ladder. You don't want to, you want to make sure it's on the right building. And I think that's what a lot of people see nowadays. And we're seeing more of that too, because of the internet, because of the 24 hour news cycles, we're seeing these people who have tragic endings, who were seemingly at the top and everyone goes, how could that be? You know, Robin Williams, Chris Farley, Phil Hartman, these comedians who, you know, I'm just going down the comedian route. You could go down something else too, right? But they get to this end and they go, is that all it was about? And I think it takes good leaders to help people understand what it's all about. Because if the leaders are sitting there going, all that matters is that we get this done today and that it's bottom line driven. And if we have to work through Christmas, we have to work through Christmas. If we have to do this, we have to do this. And and it becomes about the thing 
that is just right here rather than, no, this is so much bigger. You're doing this. Why? What's the why? Right. You know, Simon Sinek, the book, you know, start with why fantastic book. Fantastic. Why did that Ted talk capture so many people? It's because we're all yearning for that. Why? Right. And if you don't have a why in your, in your life with a personal mission statement, a personal vision to understand why am I created? What do I want to do? Who, you know, who am I identity issues, right? If you don't have that, then you're, you're going to be lost. And I see that all the time in what I do with the orphan and vulnerable kids. They're lacking identity. And that's the biggest issue. So they're just wandering through their lives, seeking and searching for something to grasp onto where they can get identity. But identity isn't something that just happens or that you can buy or that you can work hard enough to get. It's something that you actually are, you become. And it, it's, it comes over time with people pouring into you and people loving you. And typically, honestly, it comes from a father relationship. And so when that's lacking, that is really hard to create and recreate, which is what, you know, big part of what we're working to do in, in the orphan care assessment setting. But that's, that's all leadership, though, is to understand what is that thing that is driving you that why and if we don't know that as a leader we're going to be leading a lot of people astray going back to what you do i was thinking about this the other day when when we were talking um, I don't think we actually talked about it, but talking about like a high ropes course, right? I remember doing a high ropes course with with my wife and <clears throat> I was thinking about it and I was thinking, what if I did a high ropes course with someone I'd never met? You have to trust them, right? And and if you go, if, if and the one thing that I, that I heard that I love, the quote that I love from uh, Patrick Lencioni that he says is, if there is trust, then conflict becomes the search for truth. If there's no trust, conflict becomes politics and someone has to be right and the other one has to be wrong, right? And so I think about that on a ropes course, right? I mean, I imagine a lot of people, most people listening to this podcast probably have been on or know very well the ropes courses, right? What if the two people didn't trust each other and one says, we have to do this. No, we have to do this. And I'm thinking of the, one of the elements where you're on the, the cables across from each other and you're, and you're having to hold hand, you know, have mm-hmm. hands across from each other on it, you know, basically hand in hand on it going across and yep, it's the a, wild it's a, woozy. That's all. Yeah, okay, yep. There it is. Yep. I don't know the lingo, but yep. that's, it's the cable thingy in my, in my, in my <laughs> yeah. lingo. But I remember my wife and I doing it. And if we weren't in sync trusting each other. And my wife would say, Hey, you need to do this a little lighter, a little, this, a little that you're crushing my hand as you're squeezing my hands, whatever. I trust her. And I go, okay, I need to lay off. But if I don't, then I'm like, no, 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 we need to do this. And then you push and you fall, whatever it is. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that is, that is such a great analogy for a lot of leadership that when we try to do something and we say, Hey, here's what you need to do. And they don't trust on the other side, they're going to push back. And then we're probably going to more often than not fall off, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to more often than not, not be in sync. And it's going to be a clash. It's going to be that politics. It's going to be that, no, we have to be right. And then there's going to be a tension. Then there's going to be a divide. Then there's going to be something that the next time we try to do something, it's going to be the same thing. And it's probably going to get worse and worse and blow up. And then by the end of it, what happens? Forget it. We're not going to do it. I'm just going to go by myself on my cable. I'm because you can do all those elements by yourself and walk across, and it just becomes a tightrope, mm-hmm. you know. And that's not the point of it, right? And and that's not the point of doing work together either. And so we can, yeah, 
How many times do you say, forget it. I'm just going to do it on myself because it's easier to do by myself. You know, if, mm-hmm. if I didn't teach my kids how to do dishes and have to come behind them and have to come and say, hey, no, this is how you do it. I, my wife and I would be doing dishes every night and my kids would learn zero lessons. And we would have a very discontent house because my wife and I would be very upset at our kids for being lazy and not doing anything. But no, what do we do? We say, no, this is, you can do this. This is something, but they have to build, they have to trust us and go, it's not just you guys being lazy. It's you guys actually, these are lessons that you're going to and we'll share why we're doing it, obviously. Because if you just say do it without sharing the why, and whenever I coach soccer, I will virtually every time I start a drill, and there are times I don't, I'm sure, but I really tell them this is why we are doing this drill. Because what I find when I tell them why we're doing the drill, first of all, they know I have a purpose behind it. Secondly, as they're doing it, they're visualizing what they're doing and why they're doing it. So they're going to work harder. And when they're in that position in a game, they're going to know, okay, this is, it's going to be muscle memory by then. But if I don't tell them why they could think, oh, he's just making us do something because it's killing time or this or that or the other thing. And when they're in the position in the game, they won't really know what to do. And I, I, so I think that goes to every area of life. That's something that we train to very, very clearly. We want to make sure that, let's say we go into the technical world or I'm teaching someone how to belay or tie knots or all of these things. When I'm doing that with with the people I'm teaching, I always tell them, I'm going to tell you the why behind every component. Because what Mm -hmm. I don't want it to ever get to a point is, is if someone else came up to you and said, why are you doing this? For you to say, because Phil told me. Like that is never a good enough answer. You need to know exactly the mechanics of why you do something. So absolutely. I think that teaching the why so, so crucial because that empowers, you know, we we're almost following the, even in our discussion today, the motto of high five, our motto is connect, empower, lead, and be the example. So the connection we talked about, the, the importance to connect with people that you work with but then the thing we're talking about now is the, is the important component of leadership also, which is empowering others. And you empower others with giving them knowledge, under, making them understand the reasons why we're doing something. So they don't have the, well, I'm only doing this because my boss told me. I'm only doing this because X, Y, and Z told me. I'm only doing it because my coach told me. But I actually know why. I think the, and this is the transition into talking about a little bit more about soccer. Uh, so any non-soccer people who are like, oh, Phil's talking about soccer now. You can tune out. But if you really like it, keep keep listening. Is uh, I think that the best coaches are those who have trained their players enough that they know that they can let them just be. So when they're on the on the field, they're they're doing whatever they need to do. This is a slightly different because I've been working with hockey uh, teams, professional hockey teams. This is something I didn't realize. I don't think it would ever work for soccer. But in hockey, the uh, the coaches don't hang out in the locker room with the players. That's sacred to them, and they do the last chanting and cheering together before they go out. And the actual coach doesn't have much to do with the prep prior to the act prior to the games and it's left to the players and i think that that's an intriguing notion around there's that like trusting what the players are going to do i've done all the training through the week when it comes to game time i take the foot off the gas i'm not in charge as much tying it back to soccer you also host a podcast called how soccer explains leadership first question why soccer it's just been what i have i've played i love i I played since i was about four i've coached i love the game i've always been a student of the game I was a goalkeeper 
and I'm a five foot eight goalkeeper. So uh, I had to be a student of the game. And part, a big part of what I did as a player was leading my team and helping to direct my team from the back. And so, you know, going back to leadership, it's really just, it's, it wasn't about me. It was about helping them to be the best they could be. And people would say, I still, I still to this day as a five foot eight goalkeeper, hold the school record for shutouts in my high school because we had a great defense that worked together as one. And again, when you see it as bigger than yourself, I thought if my defense can be the best it can possibly be, I won't get many shots on me and we'll get a bunch of shutouts. Right. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the day, the goalkeeper gets the credit for it, but that's ridiculous. Really? Right. I mean, if, because you could have the best keeper in the world with a terrible defense and you're going to get, you're going to get scored on a lot. All that to say, it's just always been a love for me. Love watching. I love coaching my kids. I love coaching other kids. I love, I love playing. Although my 46 year old body sometimes doesn't uh, love me playing. But yeah, it's just, I think it's the other thing about it. Here's the, here's why soccer, as far as from a leadership perspective and the podcast mm-hmm. is because it is the world's most spoken language. When, you, when I go and train leadership in, and I've done it on all but one continent, everyone gets it. I mean, maybe, maybe India is more of a cricket country, but they still understand the game. And when you use analogies from the, the football pitch, since I'm speaking to a, a man from England, I will say the football pitch in the global context, it's something that people click on. And they go, oh, okay, I get that. Like, that makes sense to me. Also, honestly, the, 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 game, the game of football, soccer, it has leadership lessons that not every sport has mm. because of the, it's a fluid game. It doesn't have all the stops. It doesn't have timeouts in the middle of a half. It doesn't have these things that a lot of these sports have in football, every play they regather and they talk about, okay, here's where we're going to, you don't have that in life most of the time, right? You're it's, you're playing. Like you just said with your team, ideally you coach them, you train them on at practice in the, in the locker room, maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit before the game, but when they're out there playing, they're playing and it's not a bunch of, I mean, there are some set pieces, but that's the exception to the rule. Most of it's flowing, free flowing. You're covering for people when they go out of position and they go back, you're talking, you're having to communicate super well, at least good teams have to, right? And, and then that is, that's why I just love it. It's, it's a game that has so many leadership lessons in it. And so I just, honestly, I was, I was just noodling on it one day and I just wrote, pages on pages of what are some lessons from the game itself and I was going to write a book on it and then I said I had written a book on orphan care and it's a lot a lot of work and so I said why don't I just try to podcast on it and see what happens so that's I mean that's honestly the the why soccer could have been other sports as some people say why don't you just do how sports explain leadership honestly I want to focus on you know as they call it the beautiful game and I think that's for a reason I think it has a lot of different aspects of it that when you really understand it I honestly I get why people say it's boring but I laugh when they say that and then they tell me they're a baseball fan um but uh but I also think with with everything if you you don't really like what you don't understand a lot of times. Yes. And I think a lot of people don't understand the game. Mm-hmm. And so I'd love for people to understand the game, but I also realize most people they're going to listen to it are not going to be other sport. They're not, if they're not a soccer fan, they're not going to listen to it. But I think if they did, they'd understand it more. And the other reason I love doing this podcast, and it's probably a big reason why you're doing your podcast too, is, is I love the thought of a parent being able to be, 
go into a game or finishing a game with their kid and say, I just listened to this podcast this week and now I can talk with my kid about leadership lessons that they're learning in this game rather than just focusing on, oh, did you win? Did you lose? A lot of these parents have never played the game. They don't have a clue about the game and their kids are playing and they want to really be able to connect with their kid on it and teach their kid lessons on it. And now they have a tool, hopefully, that will be able to train them up on how to be able to train their kids up on it and have leaders who are out there leading organizations who have played soccer be able to say, oh my gosh, I've never thought of these principles in my leadership of my organization, in my marriage, in my parenting, in my relationships. So I just see so much application from what we can learn from the game. If you look at it from a relatability to the outside world, I think it is more relatable than others. You think about even, you know, the 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 fact that you can't take timeouts, you can't just say, like, I need to stop the action. The fact that it is low scoring, and that's a reality of life. You're not constantly succeeding in, you know, the the numbers that get into the hundreds or something like basketball or something. In in reality, that's constant successes over and over and over again. That's not truly relatable. You know, having games where you can play the best you've ever played, you can do the best you've ever done, and it be for a neutral, the most entertaining, and be a nil-nil draw. Like, I think that those kind of uh, examples, and that's the thing from someone outside who can look upon a 0-0 and be like, well, what happened? Why would you watch 90 minutes of nothing? The other thing that I think that is powerful is that sense of community that is that comes from being a fan of that sport. And that's something that I mentioned to you before that America unfortunately doesn't have, and I don't think has in any sports. And so I think it's a hard thing sometimes to truly relate to um, is that every single town in England has their own team and you're born and raised in it. Um, I would say probably the, the comparable thing would be religion in this country. I think that in other countries, you see it in Brazil around this, them not winning the world cup and it were, you know, really, devastating when they lost so badly and you see that in england that people call it their church they go every week and they and they watch that sport because it's it's less about the 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 gospel and the written word it's more about the feeling that it gives from that sense of community and i think that's something somewhat relatable i guess in in those in between the two countries no definitely no and i and it's something that you you're hitting on the head as far as the the why of of the of the game i think there's there's so much to to it i i i i'm, I'm there's so many things i want to say I know. but one thing that i would kind of focus on which is which is funny and it's just it is something that is always makes me laugh when you talk about the zero zero draw mm-hmm. And I look at a game like golf that gets huge viewership in the US, right? And these are these are games that the thing about them is that, and I'll say it again, is people understand them here in the US. But they don't understand soccer because it hasn't been much, it hasn't been a huge sport here outside of the youth ranks. But the youth ranks, it's usually been just let's get my kid some exercise. I just want to get my kids some exercise, but in the U S to, to the, to contrast the rest of the world, quite frankly, why the rest of the world is so good is because it is a working class sport everywhere else. Mm. In fact, the traveling I'm done, most of the people that I work with are people who are outside of the working class. And most of them did not play the game growing up as much, maybe a little bit, but they were in school. Most of the kids playing at the highest levels 
Um, in fact, there was a study, I think it was in Soccernomics, the book that talked about the 2002 um, World Cup team in England, and all but two of them were from working class families, all but two of the roster. And those two were coaches' kids. And so when you look at it and you go, okay, that's interesting because it's an elite sport in the U.S., basically. The highest levels are wealthy families because it costs so much to play. And just these systems. But I, I think the when you look at those things, you know, when you look at the ideas that you like what you understand, you like what you what you do and what you've done, and and then you actually often will rather than realize that, you know what? There might be different things for different people here. This episode is supported by Atomic Climbing Holds. With orders that ship in one to five business days and having removable climbing holds that are really ideal for a challenge course program, allowing you to adapt and change the routes that you might have on your traverse walls and your climbing walls, then I highly recommend you checking out Atomic Climbing Holds. You can find them at their website, atomicclimbingholds.com, as well as see all the wonderful climbing holds that they make on their Instagram at Atomic Climbing Holds. And Atomic is with a K, A-T-O-M-I-K, Climbing Holds. You know, a lot of times people cut themselves off because I don't want to put in the work to juggle. I don't want to put in the work at practice. I don't want to go running five miles to get in shape. I don't want to do these sprints. I don't want to go in the weight room. I don't want whatever it is there. And then they say, well, I didn't get a chance because it's this, that, and the other thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And they blame it on their lack of work. Right. But I think the other side is they, they will um, try to do something that isn't their sweet spot. Right. So I want to play soccer because I watch soccer and I love soccer, but I'm super uncoordinated and I don't have speed. Mm-hmm. And there's things, can you still play the game? Yeah. Are you going to play at the highest level? Very unlikely. Right. I mean, like I just don't, it's, but, and, and so people are often, you know, I, I, my mom and I love my mom as much as you can, a son can love a mother, but she used to always say to me, if you dream it, you know, if you, if you dream it, what is it? If you think it, you can achieve it. If you dream it, you can become it. And, you know, as a kid, of course, that sounds great. And you're going and, and whatever. And, I, and as I got older, I go, mom, that's just simply not true. Like, I can dream all day long that I want to dunk a basketball in a 10-foot hoop. I'm not going to, you know, mm-hmm. without a trampoline, I'm not dunking a basketball. in a 10, And that's okay. You know, but if we have that in our head, then we will get depressed and we'll get bummed and we'll get like, oh, I, I must not work hard enough. Or, or somebody must be against me or whatever, rather than going, no, I'm not created to do that. And that's okay. That's perfectly okay. And so I think as leaders to see that in our people, and you know what? We need to call out delusion when it's delusion. As a parent, if my kid, my, my son, he's built similar to me and he wanted to play basketball. And I said, look, I love that you want to play basketball. I love basketball. I still play basketball, but to think that you're going to get a college scholarship for basketball at a high level school is somewhat delusional. And he was, he was in junior high. He goes, dad, why are you crushing my dreams? And I'm like, I'm not crushing your dreams. I don't think I want you to work really hard at it. And I want you to play in high school and I want you to do this, but I don't want you to put all this thinking that you're going to, I wouldn't be a good father. Now, could you grow? Could you do this? And if you grow and so you need to put in that work, okay, that's great. 
but I think that as leaders, sometimes we, we are afraid to hurt someone by saying something that is, you know what, like, really? Mm-hmm. Like what, what makes you think that you could do that when here's the reality of who you are? You know, would you really be content in that? Would you really, you know, and it's not to come in and go, oh, you're an idiot. You know, and I didn't say it as quickly to my son as that, as mm-hmm. I said here. Right? I mean, it was let him down earlier or, or I mean, a lot slower, but he thanked me for it later because he did focus on soccer, which is more likely. And he was actually much better at, but sometimes it takes that leader to come in after building trust, after earning the conversation to speak that truth into a situation that helps people to flourish when they may be seeing it as something else, because they like the title, they like the idea, they like the concept of whatever, but in fact, it's not really what, again, what they're uniquely positioned to do. That's, that's really the, you know, I think there's so many different, and that's again why I love doing the the podcasting is because the way my mind works is it tends to be making all these different connections with different things that some people may not be making and some people may go, I disagree with you on that. And you know what? That's great. Figure you will disagree on with me on a lot of things. And and I think that's one of the things that we need to do more of too is disagree civilly, civilly, civilly. So, so I don't know. In a you know civil that. manner. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that, you know, I'm going to look back on some of these episodes I've recorded and disagree with myself. So everyone has the ability to be able to have those uh, disagreements because you just don't know where you are along that journey. And there's probably going to be stuff that I learn in the future that I'm like, whoa, I fought that when I was in my 30s. Like, no way, that was wrong. And, and I agree. We We focus on the work that we do. We call it a challenge course, not a success course. And I think that that's crucial to it. It's like it, it cannot be that you're going to achieve everything. And a lot of tasks, initiatives that we do when we're working with participants are designed to be challenging and sometimes not succeed. You know, our role as educators in this world and the role as leaders is to do our best to try to rectify some of that malfeasance that's gone on in the world beforehand and make people realize that we're there to support people. But we're there to support people in a really authentic, real world where success isn't always achieved. And so what can we do to teach people? When you fail, it's okay. You know what? And, and naturally in life, there are things that we do. The example I use all the time is when our kids are learning to ride bikes, we let them fall, right? I mean, you don't let, you don't push them over, but you get them going and they're going to fall. You know that falling is part of riding a bike mm-hmm. with very few exceptions. And they're going to skin their knee and they're going to hurt themselves. They might even break a bone. But what do we also know? They'll get back up and they'll get back on the bike. And if they keep getting back on the bike, they'll be riding. Now, we won't let them ride off a cliff, but we're going to make sure that they're going to learn these lessons because we know that's going to make them stronger. And we know that's the only way they're going to be able to ride a bike. Yeah. So, and beautiful connection because, and I'm just showing you this, this is my, my daughter yesterday is our first pedal bike. So we were back to some balance. She had a balance bike. So we had many moments where she definitely fell in the mud yesterday. So, and she didn't like it when it happened, but, and we had to come in, but we went back out and she persevered. So it was pretty cool to watch her get to the point where she could go down. There was a hill there on that, in that video. I thank you so much for uh, joining us and talking and rounds all the way back to that point of connection. And uh, I appreciate the connection that we've formed from just our, our both our shared love of podcasting that's brought us together. So uh, I certainly appreciate it. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. This is fantastic. 
Thanks for listening to Vertical Playcast. And then what about thanks for listening to High Fives Podcast? Can you do it? Okay, try. Thanks for getting. I think I'll pass the guy. <laughs>